This podcast was created by the Arts and Junior Cycle team in collaboration with the JCT4 team for the Junior Cycle Talks channel. Hello and welcome to this podcast. I'm John Forrest, Technology Advisor with Junior Cycle Teachers. And this week we have a very interesting conversation with Jonathan Lynch, UI Design Lead with Digit Game Studio. So the first question I have for you is tell me a little bit about yourself, where your journey as a UI designer started and how you found your way to Digit Game Studios. So I started off, um, I knew I kind of wanted to do something creative and it was, I was kind of a, a toss up between sound design and music or into art and graphics and um, that kind of route. Um, I was always playing around with stuff. I think there's a, like the, the journey to games starts with, a love of play and I think that applies to every industry I know that's very direct and very literal with games but you have to if, if you're playing music you have to just like picking up an instrument and, and kind of noodling around with it if you're an architect you kind of have to like going to cities and wandering around buildings and kind of asking yourself why did that why did they make those decisions why did this why are these buildings so close together and those ones so far apart um so I would always be if if everyone at school was playing a game I'd be the guy who tried to get into the source code and start messing with it and editing it, or I'd be the guy who tried to start swapping out the visual assets of it. Um, I went from that into into web design because it was like that's that was all the rage at the time, and that was like a, a really interesting like the the dot com bubble had burst and we were kind of getting into web 2.0 where everything was flash and animation and uh, there was a lot to learn uh, from there. I went and started working in a, um, I actually started working with a Microsoft company just doing uh, graphic design and web design for them. Then I was in Jolt Games, uh, which made Utopia Kingdoms, uh, amongst other games. They had a championship manager game as well. Then into PopCap, which people might know from, they made Plants vs. Zombies and Bejeweled and and, uh, Peggle. Um, And now Digit Games, which made Kings of the Realm and our most recent game is Star Trek Fleet Command. And we're we're super happy with that. Star Trek is a big light, a big kind of franchise and it comes with a built-in audience and it's so fun having the audience enjoy what we're making and us kind of respond to them and see what they want. Really interesting. And, and as you said there, just the last game that you were mentioning, it's really an amazing piece of work. It's a mobile game, but like mobile games are now to the point where like MMO PC games were a few years ago. Like it's it's as big as early World of Warcraft. There's so much to do in it because... The, everyone sitting on their couch has a, a mobile phone in their pocket that's as powerful as an early computer at this point. So we get, we're, we've a lot of opportunity to make some cool stuff. And when you say MMO, for anyone listening who doesn't know what that, what that stands for. So massively uh, multiplayer online game. I'll, yeah, stop me with any of these acronyms or abbreviations if you, if you want clarification. <laughs> There's RPG for role-playing game and MMO for massively multiplayer online. FPS for first person shooter, but these are all running together. It's it's we're past the kind of early days of games as a as an artistic medium. So there's nothing to stop these games leading together. So you start as an FPS and then go into more of an RPG and uh, go that direction. Like it's early early movies, either comedies or tragedies or something like that. But now it's like you it's hard to put some of these things into a box. I know the last time we were talking, and it's something I found very interesting is that. You know, you work in the games industry, but for a person who doesn't know the difference, 
between a game designer and your role as UI design lead yep. for a game. So can you just kind of talk about that? Yeah, absolutely. A UI designer is user interface design. Uh, so we position all the buttons, make sure all the fonts are readable, do all the animations and kind of big reward moments and and just make sure the flow of the game, the kind of the flow of the game is engaging and fun and that we honestly most of the time just try to get the UI out of the way of the player so they can enjoy the story or the art or the whatever really immersive elements are in there. If you're playing a game and you're like, oh, where's the exit button? I can't get out of the screen. That's bad UI. Like you just, you got tripped up and you noticed the UI. Whereas if you are effortlessly flowing through a game and you are like switching switching between your swords or shields and switching like vehicles and and that's good UI. You're it's it's I've always heard it said that if uh, UI design is like a joke, if you have to explain it, it's bad. So if if the person could just start playing and effortlessly know what they're doing, good UI. If 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 you're noticing the UI even to notice how beautiful it is, it's still intrusive and it's still in your way. A designer, so like a game designer is somebody who sits down with the, either the Excel spreadsheet if they want to like make up the economy or like a WordPad to write up the narrative and the storyline. That and kind of art then who create all the 3D assets, the animations. If you're if you're playing a racing game, like they'll do the individual thread on the tires and things like that. It's kind of the the trifecta of the visual side of things of like the story, the characters that we're presenting to you, the art the environment that you're going to be in. And then the UI is basically, how are you playing the game? How are you interacting with this world? And then on top of that, visual effects and sound effects and music and all the kind of crazy stuff that comes together to make, a, again, an engaging experience. Very interesting. And it's just something that you said there, that good UI design is that you don't really notice it. Yeah, it's we. Uh, so there's a, a kind of a sister discipline to UI, which is UX, user experience. You'll find that people use these terms interchangeably but UX is is nearly the the philosophy of it. It's like you play other people's games, you you do comparisons, you say, oh, well, what are the conventions that are coming out in this generation of games? Like when when everybody was clicking with a mouse, that was fine. But then suddenly with phones, now people are swiping. Okay, well then we have to change all the interaction paradigms that we had previously, and that's where the UX guys come in and and like map all that stuff out. And they will create a huge map of an entire game to say, well, what is the flow? Like, where, what is the player's journey from level one to level 50? You have 72 team members, 11 departments, and 23 different nationalities. Yes. With all those people involved, how do you get ID started? Yeah, I mean, we, we all um, work very closely together. And like, I work on a team with a senior and a, an associate level UI designer. So it's I always find it's really healthy within a department to have um, people of different levels of experience. So myself as a lead, and I've been in the same company for eight years and worked in the same game for five years. I hopefully know it inside out. Uh, we then work very closely with the art department who are separate and are made up of concept artists and 3D artists and animators, work very closely with UX. Um, in terms of getting ideas started, what we'll generally do is, uh, it, it kind of depends. Sometimes we'll do brainstorming sessions where we're working on a feature and the art guys will just do some cool artwork and the game designers will remember it and be like, that was really, like, we should come back to that. That's a really cool feature. Um, we do have the product and production teams who basically look at other games, see what they're doing, or look at, like, gaps in our current game. So, like, 
up to level 30, the players are completely happy. But once they get to level 35 and 40, they find that there's not a lot to do. It's like, cool. Then we'll talk to game design and UX and we'll say, what do other games do at, at level 40? Or what, you know, what is an interesting way to get, what's an interesting feature we could put in here? And they'll start shopping around and like talking to different departments to put that together. Um, at that stage, we'll write up a bunch of briefs. We'll project, present them to each department. And we'll say, what do we want to work on? And we'll come together as leads to decide what features we, we want to start getting into the roadmap. Very good. And there, it seems fairly fairly fluid that it's not, we're, you know, just kind of happens organically. We're very lucky. When we, the first game we made, we made, we started making with 20 people and maybe had 40 when it was done. And we were all on the same floor of one building. It was very, like you, you talk about horizontal uh, company structure. It was literally everyone on one floor. So it meant that everyone could talk to everyone. A lot of what we did as well is uh, the UI team would print out, if we were working on a new feature, we'd print out every single screen and we'd put them all over the walls in the kitchen. Uh, and it means that if people were stopping to have a cup of tea and they had a quick question about something in the game that they were both working on, you had the screen there, you could point at it. It was like a full storyboard and say, by the way, this will take longer to make or this is a bespoke element where we could reuse something we already have. And it's it was a really useful way to just keep everybody in the loop. What are you currently working on, Jonathan? And what does a typical day look like in your studio? Um, we're currently working on a big feature that will be coming out towards the end of the year. We're kind of, we split our game up into not quite seasons, but like maybe arcs. Um, but at any at any given time, I'm looking ahead at upcoming features. I'm looking at the stuff that we're working on at the moment. And we've got stuff that's just out the door that we're looking at the player's reaction and seeing if we need to do any kind of cleanup or bug fixing on. Um, at each of those steps, it's it's kind of a different job for me where when you start with a brief, you you absolutely like you're at the wide end of the funnel. You want to get as many ideas down as possible and make sure you listen to as many people as possible. And then you, when you get to the spec stage for a feature, um, let's say we're using uh, diplomacy. We, we put in a diplomacy feature a while ago where different alliances in the game, they're all flying around with starships, can mark other players as friends or enemies. And that means that everyone in their alliance sees this flag on anyone they see in space. So usually you're just flying around mining, like doing missions, but you might see an enemy and they've got a little crosshair on them. And you're like, oh, I should stop what I'm doing and, and challenge that guy. Making this stuff is always really interesting because we don't 100% know how the players are going to use it. Players used it to make non-aggression pacts and things like that, which is, again, for, for a game where you're flying around in space, you would think they're all at, everyone would be attacking each other at the spec stage. Then that we we want to get it real tight. That's at that point. It is about everybody signing off that we're all going to make the same thing. We can't have any room for interpretation at that point. So we'll start making mockups. We'll start working with game designers. They're writing up the the feature we're going to build. Communication is really 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 important. I'm not going to be standing next to the person who's reading the spec, so I can't leave. Like it can't be just rough notes and things like that. I need to make sure that I draw, like. Here are all of the screens and then arrows between them saying, and this screen goes to this screen and this screen goes to this screen. So the player or the person reading can follow along and see exactly what we're building. Then we go into development, we start building it. And that's where we start doing all our cool animation and VFX and just making something fun. Uh, and as I say, once something's out in the player's hands, we then make sure that we follow up. If the players are like, that was fun, but there was too many tokens and I couldn't remember what everything did. I'm like, okay, great information. We'll, we'll know for again. That kind of leads nicely into that's the question I have here. Um, how do you know when something is finished? 
It's an interesting question, and I will uh, quote something that Adam Savage has said. He was the guy who was on Mythbusters, and he's doing a great. He's got a great second life going now as a a, a YouTube kind of celebrity. He says that perfect is the enemy of good. If you're if you're constantly striving for something perfect and saying, well, I'll need six months to build that, you're never going to have six months. You're going to have two months to build it. So you need to decide early what's what you're going to actually commit to. Uh, and I know that the question is, how do you finish something? But you need to actually start right. So we always write down in the spec, this is the must-have. This is the point. This, If we get this done, then it's a, like the feature is correct and, and the players can flag each other as as enemies and friends in space. Fantastic. Then we have the should-haves. And like, well, it should be easy. The player should have a range of options. Maybe they don't just have enemy and friends. Maybe they have, you know, we're in a mining contract. We're in a this, we're in a that. And then nice-to-haves. Well, maybe we throw in some emojis. Maybe they can hail each other and say hello. And, you know, there's other ways to communicate. And we just commit to that. We, we say, all right, let's, let's give ourselves an amount of time uh, to do the must-haves and should-haves. If we get the nice-to-haves done, great. If we're tight for time, we can drop some of the should-haves. And honestly, that's it. We just we we keep lots and lots of gates, lots and lots of check-ins. At a certain point, we all sit down in the office and play it. Is this as far along as we expect it to be? Um, that's kind of for a big feature, for um, something something as small as like in the UI department, we're making new, I don't know, items that live in the game. We're making fuel cells and and parts that go on a spaceship. Again, we kind of define, well, is this an important part? What's the value of this thing that we're doing? What's the return on investment? Uh, if it is, if there's not a huge return on investment, we will say, all right, we'll make three items that look functionally the same, but they're slightly different colors. Whereas if this is the deflector dish that goes on the USS Enterprise, we're like, oh, this is a, a hero item. Players will will spend 10 levels trying to collect this item. It should look amazing. Like we'll Let's put extra glow on it and make it look fancy and do a few iterations and then once we've set out our success criteria it's very kind of, I, I won't say easy but it's easy enough to know when you're done because you've achieved at the very least the minimum level and you're reaching for that top quality bar that you've kind of set within the within the project i was looking at star trek fleet command and just the release date which was the 29th of november 2018 and the last time the version history changed, yep. which was yesterday. So that's 23 months later, and you're still adapting and yep. improving. And I suppose the question there is, as you're improving and you're going through the next cycle of design, do you have an idea of what's coming next all the time, or are you gathering feedback from the yeah, user? I, like we, have, we always have six-month plans, and then we've got loose one-year, two-year plans on any project. And and just just to sit, go back to something I said earlier, like defining your success criteria before you start is integral. A question there when you're on about the creative process, what you like doing most, and then the other side of it, what parts do you struggle uh, with? I guess uh, the things I enjoy most are kind of bounce between learning new stuff. Like even if it's not, I'm learning new software, I'm learning... I'm going to learn this volumetric 3D voxel program. Some of it is just, oh, I'm learning to work with a team to like, we can do more with more people than we can by ourselves. 
and learning to lead and kind of direct and and delegate some work as well but like it's always something i've loved all coming up through college talking with people during the day about like cool things we could be making and then spending my evening upskilling a little bit and and playing around with different things and just getting ideas down like always be sketching and that applies to whatever whatever industry you want to get into if you always be picking up an instrument always be keeping notes on your phone if you want to do some writing eventually and then show them to people it's i know that's the scary part but again perfect is the enemy of good you're not don't wait until you've got your novel written put it up online start talking to people get some feedback a really useful one for me was enter lots of competitions like when i was in college they had the make something unreal competition for the unreal engine there's unity competitions um, for Photoshop and things, there was a thousand words, as in a photo is worth a thousand words. And we would just constantly be making stuff and putting them up online because it came with a built-in deadline. So you had to work to a deadline. And that's something that's really difficult when you're student and college age is just to work to a, a point and say, right, I, I have to say this is done because the time is up. Um, and it came with feedback. You'd put it up online and you'd comment on other people's work and they'd comment on yours. Very good. And that just saying they've written down here, enter everything is a nice... It's a nice, um, it's a nice yeah. mantra. Was there any ever time when you were working on something that you know maybe you struggled with or that you you found it hard to get to get moving on a process? And if so, is there anything that you did to move your thinking forward? Um, I'm lucky that I've got a good team around me. That if there are issues like that, I don't feel bad going to someone and say, "By the way, I'm struggling with this." In everything, sometimes you'll just start working on something. And you feel like you're hitting your head against the wall. Uh, to be able to go to someone and say this isn't working before they come to you because if if you're noticing that something's like a little bit difficult and you're not doing your best work it's only a matter of time before other people start noticing Communicating is one of the junior cycle key skills can you tell us a little bit about your philosophy of design? The philosophy I have for design it's a weird one because as well as it being aesthetics it has to be good, it has to look fun um, it has to be on brand for us. I, that's something that other games don't have to to kind of deal with as much. But like, if someone's if someone's playing a game and you look over their shoulder, you need to instantly see that's a Star Trek game. Otherwise, we're wasting the license. Why do we have it? So we have to. There's all the visual and aesthetic components that go with it. Uh, good design for me in the games industry is all about communication as well. Like you are communicating something to the player with every pixel you put on the screen. Um, we need to take color theory into account we need to be knowing that like if we're using blues and greens that's more soothing or that can be completely neutral colors for like a sci-fi game but then once you bring in some reds and oranges you're you're calling attention you're saying warning or enemy or uh if it's something gold popping off the blue maybe you're saying that's something special or premium or like something amazing the player needs to pay attention to if you're doing a horror movie or a game you want things that clash. You want things that kind of disconcert or disconcerting and and um, uh, shock the player. We're coming to Halloween, so uh, if you if you look at Freddy Krueger's yeah, yeah. uh, jumper, everyone remembers it as red and black. It's not. It's actually red and very dark green because red and green clash. And it's one of those things where, as you see, just just something wrong, but you can't quite put your finger on it. Um, so I guess uh, like with the color theory and stuff, you have to learn the rules. You have to know what colors go well together, what ones complement each other, uh, and then you can you can either use those rules or break them. I, I've said it before that if 
somebody was starting a design course, I would give them an IKEA manual and say, look through that. There's no words in the entire manual, start to finish. But you still are able to follow absolutely everything, every step of the way. And um, they've got little characters doing things to show you you should use two people to carry something or put it down on carpet. They show you which screw and point directly at where it's going to go. Um, and I'd give someone like, you need to explain the first level of Super Mario to a player without using any words, just using diagrams. Like what, what does the player need to do? Um, I think you need to get into, uh, to get into good design, you need to start thinking of, well, what am I communicating? Spatial reasoning is one of the elements in Junior Cycle Graphics. Tell us how important spatial reasoning is in your work. So I, I um, did did graphics way back in the day where it was uh, it was technical graphics. I think at that stage, um, I really really enjoyed this idea of yeah. of kind of plan elevation isometric of just making sure you're thinking about stuff. Kind of you're thinking about every point and how it translates through space. I went from that into making like I was uh, doing 3D animation for quite a while and doing working with game engines. And it it can be as big, the spatial stuff can be as big as level design where you you want to design a space that either the player is going to be spending a lot of time in. So you want to have real interesting elements and and open up the space so that there's a really nice reveal moment when a player walks into a new area or make the space feel a little bit smaller and cramped to, to make, give them a, a sense of urgency. They need to get keep moving, get through the space. Even real simple stuff like the the pattern on the walls, it's a normal brick pattern, but then we do smaller bricks near the top because it just feels like the room's a little bit bigger there. And I, it's a real crazy thing. But again, if you get into architecture, it's something you'll notice. You do smaller shapes at the top to make something feel larger, or you make a wall darker to make it feel make the room feel smaller. Um, that's that's kind of the environmental way of doing things, and it's super super fun to work with that. Um, I'd, I'd totally recommend people just grabbing game engines and playing around in 3D space. This last question will probably be your hardest. What are the three best games you have played and did any of these influence your choice into going into the gaming industry? Absolutely. I think uh, that's, that's kind of two different questions. The ones that, I, the ones that um, affected my choice into the games industry would probably be things like the Zelda series. So I remember playing Zelda Ocarina of Time and like racing home from school and lying to my parents and saying I didn't have any homework so I could sit and play it for hours. And it was it was a on the N64 and it was a big leap forward in terms of games where it was an, an adventure game where you run around in 3D and you lock onto enemies and and like fight them when what felt like real kind of this really smooth, fluid battle motions that that like just work perfectly. They built in some of the UI, so the little the little fairy that was following you around that would like buzz around you and would eventually or would occasionally just zoom off and highlight mm -hmm. something, would just fly around an object, and it's an important object that you should be paying attention to. And that's a nice way of saying, by the way, we're not just going to put big stupid arrows all over the game to say you need to pay attention here. We'll have a little in-game reason why, you know, something is trying to draw your attention to something. That that to me was such a big leap forward because it created a world that was just fun to be in the sound design the music and it was amazing people like i still listen to some of the music from some of the early games i was playing i think that's one that really really stuck with me it's similar like <laughs> it's weird to say but it's similar to skyrim and if people have played that where it is just a big open world that you can explore and 
you don't need to do the missions in any order. There's no levels. You just exist in the world. Um, Skyrim had an amazing jump forward as well, where you didn't have to listen to people. There was no cutscenes. So if you start, someone started talking to you, you could just walk away from them. Go back and look at screenshots of Skyrim. It is nearly black and white. Like there is so little color in that game. And that's exactly the kind of mood and aesthetic they wanted. They wanted that real Nordic, bleak uh, uh, feeling. And it meant that then when there was a, like, uh, you know, a dragon breathed fire or something, some magical thing happened when suddenly color exploded into the world, it was genuinely epic. Um, I think uh, I, I play a lot of horror games. I like the Silent Hill franchise. Those are ones that they, in terms of design, their kind of aesthetic is both repulsion and attraction. So you see something that is terrifying. Like you see um, a wall that's covered in, in horrible stuff, but you also see something interesting on the other side of the room. So you have to kind of force yourself to walk across the room to get to the thing. And it's, they, they did a lot of like, they would sit and stare at Francis Bacon paintings and they would sit and stare at like horror movies and other, and like horrifying artwork and things. And would just say, why is this scary? What what what's scaring me here? One of the first things they do in Silent in Silent Hill Two is they make you walk into the town. Like you don't start in the town with all the monsters and stuff. They make you walk through a little forest. It doesn't do any. Nothing happens. There's no reason for it. But they were like, no, no. We really wanted you to have the feeling that you couldn't turn back. Like you've you've invested. It's like sunk cost fallacy. Um. So you can see that a, a design choice isn't just well, we're going to put a picture here. A design choice is. What is the player doing at this moment? And and what are they thinking? And what are they like what's their emotional state going to be when they have to like how do we instill a sense of terror in Silent Hill and make them feel really apprehensive? How do we instill a sense of wonder in Skyrim? They see something and they're like, oh my god, this is the most epic thing I've ever seen in my entire life. If someone said to me, Our game's art, I would sit them down with a Silent Hill game to play. And maybe something like Mario Kart, which is not quite as lofty as the other two, but is so tight. Like you can play Mario. I've played Mario Kart probably for thousands and thousands of hours. And every single time I play, I'm noticing little tweaks, little bits, things I never noticed before were like, they, it's so well balanced. They have something in that game called rubber banding so that if you get too far ahead, they just pull you back a little bit. And if you fall too far behind, they push you forward a little bit. Mm -hmm. So if you've lost a bunch of games in a row, they start you off with a load of coins so that you drive faster. If you get far too far ahead, they start firing blue shells at you, start giving them to other characters. Uh, and I just think it's one of the most well-designed games ever made. And yeah. to be that well-designed and just be amazingly fun at the same time, I don't think anyone ever sits around thinking how well-designed Mario Kart is. They just think it's a fun game. Having fun is definitely something that has come across as you've been speaking to us throughout this podcast. Play, have fun, explore and see how things go. I can't think of a better way to end. Thanks so much for joining us, Jonathan. Thank you very much, John. Thanks for having me. It's been an absolute pleasure. Thank you for listening to this podcast, which was created by the Arts and Junior Cycle team in collaboration with the JCT4 team. To hear more from Junior Cycle Talks, search for us on SoundCloud or anywhere you listen to your podcasts.